Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing to the show. We can't wait to share the show. But first, I have to ask, how much sleep did you get last night? Getting enough sleep and waking up on time aren't easy, but it can be. The sleep experts at Mattress Firm can help. They have the widest selection of America's best-selling brands. And they have beds for every budget. Everybody and everybody. Go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast and save 10% with the code podcast10. And if online shopping isn't your thing, Mattress Firm stores are in your neighborhood, so better sleep is right around the corner, literally right around the corner. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I'm thrilled that Steve Almond is uh, on the other end of the phone. We're doing this one long distance because uh, Steve and I tried to meet up in person and it, it didn't work. He is the author of like 12 uh, books, some novels, some essays, some nonfiction. He um, wrote, uh, he's, he's taught, uh, he's a teacher also. He's a really great podcast uh, that I love called Dear Sugar. And um, that came out of a column originally, right? It came out of a column. came out of a column I started. Cheryl Strait took it over and actually made it a big important thing, and then it became a podcast. And but, you know, but, you know, man, I, I, and it's really a terrific podcast that you and Cheryl do together, right, most of the time? Yeah. Yep, all the time. So, uh, you know, Steve, you wrote a book years ago um, that is, st- has stayed really Im- important to me, and th- that's the book Candy Freak. Um, I, when I read the book, uh, I, and I'm sure you get this all the time, I had that experience that uh, Paul Oster talks about that people having in, uh, in Leviathan, which is I felt like as though I knew you. It's such an, um, an intimate look inside who you were as a kid and yeah. who, you were, who you were when you wrote the book. And, uh, and I've read, I read Heavy Metal to your collection when it came out. Wow. And um, yeah, I've, I've, I've read you for a, a long time, but Candy Freak, and I really dug that book, but Candy Freak mattered to me in a different way because it talked about uh, both a lost America, right. uh, a nostalgia for a kind of America, the realization that as people now, we weren't in that place anymore, that the world was moving. Mm-hmm. But the book was suffused with an optimism. Uh, some kind of hope, even though there's a great sadness in the book, there's also uh, hope. You know, you found it in certain things living on in new ways. You found it in certain things being remade. You found it in right. the way you still related to this obsession of yours. And you published a book last year, this year, called Bad Stories, which to me is one of the most bleak, dark looks at America that I've read yeah. and our times. Sorry about that. No, man. I mean, uh, I, I, uh, I also love that book, though um, it didn't leave me with the same warm feelings that Candy Freak left me. And ha- I-, I just want to understand uh, how you went from the guy who wrote Candy Freak to the guy who wrote Bad Stories. Yeah. Yeah, well, l- let me tell you a little bit of Thank you for going deeper into my catalog than anybody other than my mother. May she rest <laughs> in peace. But the the story behind Candy Freak is fascinating because it's kind of a story about how I think the creative process works. I think I think the crucible of all creative work is obsession, and I think yes. every you know every kid is born into every child is inherently obsessive. It's not 
Um, you know, it's one of the few verbs that that immediately is interesting because it connotes uh, an internal conflict, right? It's something we're totally fixated on, but we feel bad about being fixated on. So that's because I think kids are socialized out of their obsessions. They're told not to care too passionately about things because it's disastrous and it's disruptive and, you know, you don't do well enough in your MCAS or whatever. But the truth is that's really how consciousness functions. The stuff that we obsess about is the stuff that if we're the people who create things, we're going to end up creating things about. And it took me, you know, but then we have, especially when you're like a young writer after I wrote the stories in my life in heavy metal, all any of which were good because they were consciously or unconsciously about stuff I was obsessed with. Sure. But after that, I sort of thought, I have to write a great novel. I have to write a great novel. Like, that's the thing that I have to do because of some Jewish superego kind of hovering over me. And I tried, like, you know, like hell, wrote two, you know, two years I spent writing this novel about the, the false messiah, the biggest false messiah in Jewish history. It's a fascinating story, but I could never really find a way in. I didn't love the guy. I just pushed him around for 800 pages. And um, my, my, the woman who was my agent at that time, like, Took, took her four months to finally start reading it, and she took her about 40 seconds to fire me, which she was right to do. The book was terrible. I read it to my wife years later, and she fell asleep like after a few pages. That's brutal. Yeah, it was brutal. It was like I kind of was rereading. She convinced me, like, it can't be that bad. You're that's talking just, about how that's awful just this is. fucking brutal. Yeah, no, no, and she's a writer, too. And she's no, really I love her. Judge, I love her yeah. already. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not like she, I mean, it was, it was a terrible moment in the marriage where, like, I, I said, okay, well, you know, okay, I'll dust this thing off. And, you know, like, maybe, I, maybe I'm wrong about it. Maybe I just need, need fresh ears on it. And I start reading this thing, and I'm sort of gradually, we're lying in bed. She's right, you know, she's sort of in my peripheral vision next to me. And, you know, we've gotten one or more of our kids down to sleep, so everybody's kind of tired. And I start reading it and, like, getting into the narcissistic kick that I was in when I wrote it, like lots of pushing around the language in search of a story and lots of fancy... Yeah, pyrotechnics, writing. the pyrotechnics. Right, all the pyrotechnics that insecure writers use to, to engage in the ego drama of whether they're interesting enough as opposed to whether they have a story to tell. Anyway, so I'm, like, reading this stuff and falling in love with it and kind of being like, yeah, that's a really funny line, but I'm noticing that my wife is not doing the sort of thoughtful humming or the like chuckling that I'm expecting. Right. And instead her, she's got this deep breathing that's very calm and steady. And I finally look over and <laughs> she's totally asleep. And then, but like I say, honey, and she opens her eyes. And then Brian, this is maybe like the horrible moment. I, then we have to have the argument about whether she was asleep. So then it's just like, oh, God, we're in such a terrible place. Like, I don't blame you. You should be asleep. It was awful. Please just don't lie to me about having been asleep. Anyway, that happened. My agent fires me, and I'm feeling, like, completely depressed. And what happened when I got depressed is there's nothing I wanted to do. I was not interested in the world. I was in my bed. The only thing I was even remotely interested in was um, candy, chocolate. It was, like, the thing that I'd used as a kid to find a path away from despair, and it was the only thing I was interested in. So I used my old journalistic chops to get into the Neko factory. I was in. Well, Boston. you went on the road, right? Or the well, Neko the factory road, but, was first. Yeah, the Neko factory was first because I was in Somerville, yeah. living in this little bacterial, you know, studio apartment in Somerville, 
and I got into the Necco factory, and that was its own. I mean, the moment I walked into that place, my depression was gone. The elevators smelled like Halloween. It was like the mosaic of the broken Necco wafers on the third floor of that facility was the most gorgeous impressionist painting I've ever seen. It was just unbelievably enlivening, and I suddenly was back in the, in my childhood. And I I I wrote the book, but I wrote the book basically because I'd reached a point where I was so desperate and so stripped of my writerly vanity, my idea about what I should be doing, that the only thing that would get me to the keyboard was my obsession with candy, was this thing that I had left behind in my childhood. So much so that when people, friends of mine read the book, they were like, you're such a freak. Why did you never tell us about this? And I was like, because I was deeply ashamed. Because what person, self-respecting writer, writes a whole book about candy? I should be writing the great American novel, but I'm not talented enough. So I wrote this crazy travelogue about, and it is about a lot of things beyond candy, but at the heart of it, it really is about the confectionery industry. And it's about late model capitalism. And it's about my depression. Well, it's, it's about just, family you know. too, man. And it's, yeah. right? And it's yeah. about your family and the residue of your family in the same way it's about the residue of the original people who tried to make a certain kind of candy with the people who then tried to redo it it's right. you know it's very literary and novelistic and it's i mean that's what you ended up doing right you wrote a non-fiction kind of a novel yeah i guess so i mean the, the i think what i would say is that when you're what I what I like what what makes me proud about that book like a friend of mine read it and she was like oh I get it you wrote yourself out of a depression, and you know I think yes. you mentioned David Foster Wallace uh, b before uh, or, or maybe you didn't for the podcast but hopefully you can edit in that in our pre conversation you mentioned David Foster Wallace and um, you know that that's what he would do I mean he's a guy who I consider to be a, a phenomenal mostly I, I love his nonfiction even more than his fiction which is also terrific but that was somebody who basically battled with capital D depression his entire life and people say oh you know it's the myth of the romantic suffering artist you have to be really depressed in order to make great art that's garbage what happens is that you use writing and creativity as a way uh, when you're feeling better when you're not depressed it's the thing that kind of you can latch onto that forces you out into the world. And for me, that's what Candy Freak was. If there was joy in that book, which I hope there is, it's partly because I had found a way to get out of my apartment, to get out of my own way creatively and write about something that really mattered to me. Because you, you the, the reader feels that in your search for the hurts of your own childhood and in the way that you heal them, we're healed as we're reading the book too, right? Because these touchstones for you, we can find the analogs in our own life, in our own obsessions. Yeah, and I, think, I think candy's like, the, it's the sex, drugs, and rock and roll of childhood. It's like the first great forbidden pleasure and everybody has that in common. I am, you know, a, a kind of, I'm at the far end of the spectrum in, in how obsessed I was with it. Um, and and the kind of damage it wrought on my dental you know health and and my metabolism and at one point I had a um, <laughs> I got like one of those tests that for for cholesterol and they test something called triglycerides which sort of is apparently the level that you're supposed to, you know test kind of how much sugar you eat yeah and my I think the range the normal range was zero to one fifty and I came in at three thirty three. Amazing. You know, as a fairly like skinny, anxious yes. person. Yeah. So Amazing. it was like caro syrup was essentially flowing through my veins. That's what they figured out. But I mean, for me, the the, the thing that was, um, I, I think Candy Freak allowed me to feel like, okay, 
uh, America is consolidating. Late model capitalism has this kind of death grip on the culture. We're all buying the same hamburgers and T-shirts and tennis shoes and soda pop. But there are these outposts uh, where this other America... Of individual expression, in a way. Individual expression of regional identity, of the sense that the things that you, you know, the, the things that you buy and consume are made in your local community. This whole idea that there is an America underneath that sort of cor- corporate overlay that is stubbornly alive. And I think that is something that I found very hopeful when I went out to, you know, uh, write about the Idaho spud and went through that old factories, like old beat up factories. But, but also when you found the five star and you started talking about why that bar, even though it was a modern bar, was great. Right. Is that what right. it was called, the five star? The five star bar, exactly. Yeah. Lake Champlain. Well, what you see, I mean, this is the thing that is hopeful. in in that book is that human greatness, the capacity to make a fantastic candy bar, to engineer uh, an an amazing candy bar, and to write with precision about the intimate process of eating, of what mouthfeel is like, of how textures interact, of how flavors interact, that is, for me, incredibly exciting. It gets me pumped. It's almost like a sexual turn. It is. It's a sensual turn on. Sure. And that was what I was, I was sort of plugging into the sexual part of that in my life in heavy metal. But in Candy Freak, everybody can go right there. You know, when we're born, our mouth is the chief exploratory organ. It's like 95% of our cerebral cortex is devoted to the mouth as the exploratory uh, organ in our body. It's why babies are always putting stuff in their mouths. And that is, I don't think, I think, again, we're trained out of that. And parents say, don't put that in your mouth and don't taste that. But if we're honest, we still are living there. That that Flavor, book, yeah. yeah, that that book. I, you know, at that time, you wrote that book. Sarah Val wrote the book about going to the places where people were assassinated, and Chuck right. Posterman wrote the book about going to the funeral to the spots where um, rock stars died. Right. And or they're so either you know in the case of Great White, he went to the club, but mostly he went to the 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 places they were they were buried. Um, Sarah Val to the assassination spots, you to Candy and. And this is the way I want to bridge into talking about bad stories, because these were three incredibly smart people who, by all rights, uh, who had good lives by sort of any objective standard, but who felt there was something missing, that something had happened along the way in America. And they were going to go out and try to touch it again, get in touch with this thing they were obsessed with. And through that, experience some kind of catharsis wherein they could let go the purely emotional attachment, the thing that was holding them back or, or feel it or understand it, find new inspiration and then get ready to move on with their lives, which is what I found hopeful in those three books all right. came out within, I think, 15 or 18 months of each other. And, uh, and at the time that seemed like this weighty that we were able to leave even though that was written during George Bush's America, yep. Yep. We were able to care about the interiority of um, wealthy by any regular standard, even if you were living in a... I lived in Somerville in my life, so I, I know what Somerville is. Uh, you know, you're still a, a, um, an intellectual uh, yeah. living in a college town, um, thinking of the you know, Barton Finkish life of the mind. Right. And we cared a lot about that. And like I said, I cared a lot about that. And I'm... I, uh, you know, my version of that was pro wrestling when I was a kid. And I had these great parents. Um, my dad is still with us, but these great parents who never asked me to back off from any of my obsessions. In fact, 
who encouraged me to chase my obsessions. And I've, that's how I was able to like sort of build my, my whole life on curiosity and obsession, fascination. Mm -hmm. that's, those are like, have been um, the drivers of every good decision I've ever made, and I was encouraged. So I can understand how that being thwarted. But that said, right. but, uh, and you devoted time in lots of your pieces to... Um, to the to your your internal apprehension of the world, and um, little sort of um, in, in in almost micro steps of self growth, right? That's what mattered to you. Yep. Uh, finding little ways to grow, because basically, as like almost in a Jared Diamond kind of a sense, we weren't threatened existentially. There wasn't this sense of imminent collapse, right? But bad stories is all about imminent collapse. Yeah. I just want to say, like, just so you know, I'm, I'm totally down with Moondog Mange. Good. I'm totally down with Jimmy Superfly Snuka. I'm totally down with Baron Von Raschke. Well, the claw, the claw is one of the greatest and really difficult to uh, escape finishing moves. Baron Von Raschke's claw. Yeah, of uh, course. And no, I, we used to do that. My brothers and I would be like, it's the claw, where you grab his forearm and the, you know, he'd have the claw. Yeah. So uh, I, yeah, I, I don't want to even yeah. get, uh, for us, I was obsessed for years at probably between ages seven and uh, nine with trying to understand how Stan Stasiak was able to land the heart punch. It always seemed that it would be easy to defend, yet uh, he was able, just by putting a guy's hand behind his head, he was able to land the punch, which is uh, really uh, says something about his athleticism. Also, which is odd, because he looked like a much doughier version of Jack Nicholson in, in, in like that wolf movie. Correct. Are you struggling to get sleep? If so, the fine people at Mattress Firm want to help. Mattress Firm is here for you when you're looking for ways to improve your sleep. These are mattress experts here, people. And they're not just mattress experts. They can help you build your bed from headboards to adjustable bases to sheets. They even have bedroom decor. They got you covered literally and figuratively. Plus, if you go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast, you can save 10% with the code podcast10. Mattress Firm offers a 120-night sleep trial. So you can rest assured that you'll love your mattress or your money back. And they offer a 120-night low price guarantee so you know you paid the perfect price. With more than 3,000 stores nationwide, not only are they in your backyard, but this means they have the ability to offer you deals that nobody else can. And that's on top of the 10% savings you'll already cash in on. So go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast and start sleeping better tonight. Back to this notion of uh, yeah. bad stories. You, you could see that I was just avoiding... Uh, where where this conversation has to go, which is how does the guy who wrote Candy Freak, who you know, kind of moved out into the world in a hopeful, optimistic way, uh, write about collapse? I have to say, you know, sometimes sometimes you choose the book, sometimes the book chooses you. You know, I you I have been a student of the American story, which sounds kind of pretentious, but I don't mean like oh I've been in academia or I've even been in a, you know journalism because I'm really an apostate journalist, but I've been following it and thinking about it and obsessing over it ever since I was a little kid. I'm a kid of Watergate. I remember watching that develop. I remember being obsessed with both Watergate itself and the book that came out of it, All the President's Men, and later the movie. Me too. Yeah. You know, so that, that was a, you know, that's why I became a journalist, because I thought, wow, um, journalism, the fourth estate, 
really is the thing that uh, will will save us. It's it really is the people's representative in Washington. I bought in whole hog to that idea that um, you know they were going to hold power to account and afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted, and I was all in on that. And I you know I, that drove me to to move to El Paso. You know I, I edited the high school paper, I edited the college paper. Where'd you grow I, up? I grew up in Pal- I grew up in Palo Alto, California, in the '70s. So Palo Alto, California, is now, as we know, associated with you know mega wealth and and Facebook and all that stuff. Back then, there were no personal computers. There were calculators. There was the Texas Instrument calculator. So it was basically a pretty quiet college. And then you went to the college that's the East Coast equivalent of what Palo Alto was then, Wesleyan. Yeah, probably. Yeah, absolutely. But in each of those places, what I was trying to do was kind of use journalism as a kind of informal fellowship to push myself out into the world. And the moment I... uh, you know, graduated. I, I ended up in El Paso, Texas, for four years, and then I wound up as an investigative reporter in Miami, Florida. And both of those, especially El Paso, are really extreme places. You know, Palo Alto was kind of a quiet suburb. Um, uh-huh. You know, before sort of Facebook and and all that, all the tech utopia crap ate it up. It was basically a pretty sleepy college town. But I ended up in El Paso, Texas, for four years at age 21, and that was just an absolute mind trip because there's, you know, nobody really knows unless you live on the border what it is like to have a country of such material deprivation next to a country of such absurd abundance. And, you know, I'd go out on my balcony and literally watch the day maids coming across the Rio Grande on the, you know, on the backs of these guys, mulas, who they'd hire for a buck to take them across the country, and then they'd scramble up the embankment and come through the tortilla curtain and have to undress in plain view at dawn, you know, shivering, changing into their dry clothes, hoping the INS van didn't come and deport them back to Juarez. The whole thing was so demeaning, and what I realized is you never, I never wrote about that. The big story that was the central human event, uh, uh, the central human dynamic, almost never got written about. I was writing about this crap, you know, covering heavy metal bands. And, and there was something interesting and human in that experience. That's why I wrote My Life in Heavy Metal. Yeah. But there was also a giant blind spot, which is the blind spot of power as it, and wealth as it exercises it over people who don't have power. Well, that's what I was... Wealth. Yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of that's what I was getting to. You know, when we're talking about the earlier books, I was just sitting here thinking that... The thing is that until this book, and I guess partially the football book, but even the football book, your writing always has some romance in it. There's something where you understand the romance of football, right? You understand the romance of you, the character of Steve on the road, going to the, even in a depression, on the road, right? But you've, the, 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 Secondary title to bad stories is what the hell just happened to our country. And it's a a book about uh, the way in which the media has driven a series of stories home, uh, ideas, a received wisdom at this point that we have come to uh, believe that explain away not just trump but the trump phenomenon yeah and i don't want to make this all about trump but what i, I, I you know the book is in, in, incredibly compelling and um i fold it over like 
almost, I, almost every page, so many that it was a useless endeavor because I can't really find anything to, to throw at you because like I'm, it's just all it's all dog-eared. Right. But, but I will say that one thing I felt reading it, and this is not a criticism, it's a, uh, um, I think you made this choice where it feels to me as I read it, and I might misread it, but it feels to me that you're in a way underselling the culpability and maybe culpability is the wrong word, but okay, a better word, the agency. Because let's say, I don't want to... It undersells the agency of the average American who voted for Trump. It seems to me to place the blame in all the forces that influence that person. Um, yeah, yeah, that's probably true. I mean, w- w- the way I would say it is there was a f- an original version of the book that was very angry and very aggrieved. But ultimately, let, let me say it, the best way I can say it is like this. I don't believe in bad people. I believe that people fall under the influence of bad stories. And I believe that everybody, that's true of everybody. And I believe that the agency of every single uh, citizen of the country uh, should be under scrutiny. You don't wind up with somebody so manifestly cruel and incompetent and insecure as your leader unless everybody in their own way uh, uh, is responsible for that. And, and I'm not... Right, so I, it's not why did they vote for Trump, it's why did we vote for Trump, and I understand that. Um, why, did we pay it, why did we pay such slavish attention? Because one of the big dodges that I, I'm trying, I was trying to make sure that people could not execute in, in this book, and the same thing, it's, it's an analog to the football book. Against Football was really saying, football's beautiful and amazing, I, can, I was fascinated by it for 40 years, I understand from the inside why it is such a remarkably dramatic game. But if you really morally interrogate it, uh, you have to recognize how perverse and screwed up it is in a million different ways, not just the health of the players, but its racial dynamics and its gender dynamics and all of it. And if you watch it, you're sponsoring it. Please don't use the Dodge, because I've been carrying around that briefcase of rationalizations for four decades, every single one of them. Please don't try to suggest that the NFL is the most important thing in America because of it. It's because of us, because we've made the decision with our time and our money and our attention and our passion and in a certain way with our religious faith to focus on this brutal, brutal, beautiful spectacle. The same way I, I kind of bring the hammer down on individual fans and myself in against football, I'm trying to say in bad stories, every single American is responsible for this. We have all consented to a set of bad stories. We all focused on Ahab. The the networks show us pundits yelling at each other. They show us an empty podium with, you know, with Trump about to do his thing in front of the ravening hordes because we watch it. They are actually a for-profit business right now. And until we change what we consume, until we turn away from the big bad story of Ahab and his wounded masculinity and his desire to strike the sun if it, would, you know, if it insults him, we are part of the problem as well. I'm, not, I'm really not big on saying there are those people over there and we're the people with virtue and common uh, sense. But on the other hand, you quote Postman who says, you know, the gradual abdication of moral intellectual rigor is the greatest risk to American democracy, but you, you, you don't do it as an indictment of those people who abdicated. And, and I also think those people would find that idea from people like us. 
to be condescending. Oh, God. It's the word I hear most often. It's been weaponized. And But no, and okay, let's find a better word. Right? I hate the word pretentious but also because what, what are we pretending to? But if not condescending, I would say it, it further takes agency from those people by, by granting all of the, a large part of the cause to the institutions. Right. Well, Don't look, we I excuse can't. and then also by excusing fail to accurately grasp the desires, the true wants, the xenophobia or the racism or uh, the fear of, and the, I'd say, let's say their, uh, apprehend, their, their personal sense that, their own, that the fear is justified. Well, uh, look, here's the deal. That's absolutely true. I agree with you 100%, but the election went like this. 65, 66 million Americans voted for Clinton. 63-some-odd voted for Trump. Yes. And 104 registered voters didn't vote. So Trump barely got a quarter of the electorate. And each and the people who did vote for him had every single one of them tells a different story than the one that we want to put on them. They don't say, you know what, I'm just, I mean, there's maybe a tiny percentage who are like, I just think the white race is superior and I don't like these uppity women and people no, of color. No, of course, I, I agree with you. I but agree most with you. of them tell a story, as we all do, we're all the heroes of our own story, right? Like David Copperfield, we all feel like the, the story they tell is something much more nuanced, something that is... You could say it's gullible. You could say that it's naive. You could say that it's choosing grievance over vulnerability, you know, and you wouldn't be wrong about that. But to my way of thinking, the reason that we got Trump was because of a whole set of stories that were in place long before America even existed when it comes to the story of race or what a representative democracy means. And until we start talking about those stories, we're going to be subject to the next Trump. And the next Trump might even be more organized. He might even have a program like the great fascists did. And that's really what I'm getting at is Trump is a symptom and I don't believe that you are going to – he didn't create a movement. He inherited an audience. That's all he did. He just inherited talk radio's audience with the acquiescence of the GOP, whose jingoism and ethno-nationalism got out of control. Frankenstein took over the lab, right? And I don't see any use in trying to convert any of those people because the more devoted they become to his despicable behavior, the more shame they feel. And Trump has weaponized that shame. So now anybody who speaks with any kind of moral clarity is talking down to but them. Aren't we, but aren't we uh, writing off? Where is the gain in deciding that some segment of the populace is, as, is, is hypnotized? Which is really, in a way, in a reductive way, the, what the book is talking about, that these stories, the power of these images and words and repeated uh, mantras about the world have hypnotized right. people, taken them out of their ability to think, reason, learn, and has made them uh, just fall in line to a chosen identity. Well, I'd say it like this. That's certainly one way of putting it. What I would say is, if you're not tuned into the stories that talk radio has been telling, Fox News has been telling, the even more fringy right-wing websites that these folks are steeped in, if you have not been tuned into that story, then you don't understand the worldview. Because what they've done is constructed, you're right, Hannah Arant talks about this telos, this grand narrative. Yeah. 
you know, fascism is a kind of organized uh, or disorganized or sort of organized loneliness. What they've figured out is they're these people who make sense of the world. They put an actual, they make it feel reasonable that I'm angry and afraid all the time. There's a reason for me to feel angry and afraid. There's a reason that I feel that I've lost my utility in this economy, in this country. And it isn't because I'm a bad person, and it isn't because a corporation is automated or sent jobs overseas. It's because of the dark other hovering at our borders or lurking in our communities. It's the old con of getting people focused on racial resentment so they don't start asking questions about economic justice. It's like it's the oldest con in the book. But my, to my way of thinking, Brian, honestly, I don't care about those folks. They're going to act how they vote. They're going to vote how they vote. They're American citizens. They have that right. I'm concerned with a, a system that we're voting in that literally, with the media's acquiescence and cooperation, is driving people away from their faith in self-governance, is driving people to literally – they're not just trying to suppress the vote – which they are actively doing on the right, which is what you have to do when you're a plutocratic party with incredibly unpopular policies. You have to reduce the number of people who vote. In fairness, our side does gerrymandering, too. Yeah, but not Uh, with the same kind of calculated... I mean, you're absolutely, but not as effectively. I mean, this is what I mean. We're worse at that stuff, for sure. Well, here's why. And, and And listen, I am a liberal Democrat, but I guess part of what I'm trying to understand, and your book helps with this, but I'm trying really hard to get out of one of my best friends uh, is a, a brilliant person who doesn't think that Trump is uh, good at all, thinks he's all id and all this stuff, um, but thinks that the policies, ha- you know, looks at the data. And this guy's a, a brilliant, a 200 IQ person. He thinks that the, you know, if you look at the metrics, uh, the country is economically better off. You know, this isolationism is probably smarter. Yeah, Roe is a big mistake. You know, overturning Roe is a big mistake. And we should, that, that could be a bad, um, un, in his mind, unintended consequence of the thing. And I'm trying to understand how this very smart person, he's from Kentucky originally, so he came up looking at the world differently than I did, literally, you know, from the hills of Kentucky, Appalachia, mm-hmm. or near Appalachia. And what I'm trying to understand is how he can look at Trump and see something and a result so different from what I see. Right. And yeah. this is not somebody um, less smart than, than you and I are. This is somebody who's read as many books as we have and all that stuff. And just l- and not a racist. Uh, has a, a gay brother, gay brother-in-law, spent his life around uh, working with black people he loves. And I know him like for... 40 years, 35 years. And I'm trying to understand how someone like that can look at Trump and see something so different, and, and Trump's administration, and see something so different. And it makes me wonder if, if sometimes if we're under a spell of a kind of orthodoxy, if our stories... So how do you look at it and try to separate the orthodoxy into which uh, I buy versus the orthodoxy into which my friend buys? Um. Well, I want to say to begin with that I understand that feeling. You know, I have my in-laws were, you know, parents, grandparents of my of my kids. They, they voted for Trump. And, you know, I, I love them and they love our kids. And, and like Americans all over are kind of trying to understand that. But I just want to say bad stories is trying to say 
in terms of your friend, no matter how smart he is, uh, he's under the influence of a set of stories about how a nation state is supposed to function, um, about uh, probably some pretty cynical stories about how uh, ineffective government is, how it can't really make a difference. Uh, or maybe it would be best if and somehow we became more isolationist for, you know, by some economic rubric. But I can tell you that the big story is that every empire dies because of internal division. Every empire comes down because it's divided internally. And that is what really effective demagogues and, and polit- bad political actors attempt to do. They attempt to sow discord. It's the entire way that the GOP and Trump, as a sort of apotheosis, the GOP operates. And that's what Putin saw. I'm not going to beat America with military. I'm not going to beat him economically, but I can beat him with bad stories. And how would you articulate the bad story? What What is the bad story we're buying when somebody quotes to you, uh, black and female unemployment is at its lowest, that it's been in 30 years. I would say, okay, and people are, working people in this country are literally, teachers are literally having to go on strike en masse to, to, to have a livable wage. The fact that people are employed or the fact that the economy's boom or the stock market is going up has nothing to do with the big story, which is that late model capitalism is acting like a centrifuge, the world's most efficient centrifuge to concentrate wealth and power. And the people who are making decisions in the government right now are doing so and always, in every instance, choosing corporate interests over human interests. And that will catch up with people. It doesn't matter if people are – I mean – I'm glad that unemployment is low, but the fact is that people are still struggling with a livable wage, that you do have a situation where people literally can't move into cities and therefore come to start to resent cities because it is so it's impossible to move into the cities. And you also have this environment, I believe, where we are becoming increasingly paranoid and increasingly militarized and increasingly violent. And if you really think about well, that's it. the no. This is the thing that see. So for me, um, I feel completely in sync uh, about the fact that that this is uh, that 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 Trump and people around him are authoritarian. You know, are uh, dictatorial and authoritarian in their in their hearts. That even if they can't effectuate it, that is the way they believe things are supposed to run. Right. And they believe they should run things that way. And I don't think civil liberties matter to them. And for me, uh, there's this huge primacy on you can't, I, to me, you can't just say, well, Roe's a bad unintended consequence. First of all, among those 63 million people, um, many of them voted in the hopes that the Republican Party would get to name Supreme Court justices. Right. So we have to accept that a lot of our country wants that, actually. Well, not a lot. Less than a quarter. But look, civil rights do matter to people in the Trump administration and Trump supporters. It matters to their constituency. It matters mostly to white people. It matters to white people of a certain income. It's not that civil rights don't matter to anyone. It's just that they have said, basically, better to have a really whipped-up an enthusiastic base of angry white people, you can still, if you if you game the system well enough and you get some outside assistance and you have the electoral college, which is, you know, math, sort of slave owner math, then you can sneak in to the White House. There's a way that you can lose the election by three million and still get 100% of the power. And look, the reason the right is more effective than the left 
is two things. One, they don't have to play by the rules. They don't have a functioning conscience that's saying, you know, it's really wrong to try to distort the lines by having gerrymandering so that there's this, you know, a lower number of votes gets you a higher amount of representation. I would agree. They don't have an institutional They, they uh, don't institutional have any conscience, conscience right? Yeah. See Merrick Garland, right? They just don't. So they're unburdened by that. And that means that they also get to lie with impunity and tell whatever bad stories are politically in their interest. Death panels uh, really existed. Those things exist. The government's going to take your gun. The well, as you say in the book, that Obama wasn't born here and that he was a Muslim. But right. uh, for sure, but... but but what I'm having a hard time finding, it in, and as I've tried to do this, because the truth is I've never been more frightened, more filled with anxiety about um, the world that my kids live in, uh, the world that people far less fortunate live in. Um, right. um, many of my waking hours for the last two years have been consumed with this notion, and, and because when I look at Trump, I see somebody... Um, not only incapable, but among the worst people who could have been in that office that I could possibly think of. Yep. All the characteristics I wouldn't want in somebody in that office right. he embodies and personifies, right? On the other hand, this is an, on the, uh, I have not found an effective way to talk about the situation. And I think the book does a great job of articulating how we got here. Right. What I'm trying to find is a language that is not a language for people who have postgraduate degrees like we do, because it's useless, I think. We're talking to ourselves. Right. And, but how do we talk to people? How not do we? How do people start talking about this in a right. way that creates a true, sustained urgency? and without the fatalism that McConnell and those guys are going to fuck us again. Right. Well, look, I mean, that's, in, in a sense, that's sort of the big $64,000 question that, that people wind up asking me, like, oh, you've articulated all the bad stories. You've articulated how, in fact, propaganda took root, you know, the destruction of the fairness doctrine, the idea that government should regulate media so it doesn't become propaganda. You know, that explains why we have... Uh, an entire kind of Politburo of propaganda. Yeah, the that, fairness, that is, the fairness stuff, and then the fairness doctrine, right? And you know, you've explained, you know, the way the left uses comedy shows as a kind of opiate for for distress that we should feel. How activism has been sort of sapped from the from from the body electorate because we're, in some sense, we're we're too addicted to our entertainment to really rouse ourselves to the struggle. Uh, there's a lot in the book that's trying to say here are the factors that are keeping us from. Uh, holding one another and ourselves accountable to respond appropriately to this moment. But I'll say that the idea of what the Democrats or the left should say is not complicated. It's the reason I quote Roosevelt's new nationalism speech that he gave back in 1910, Teddy Roosevelt, right, this raging imperialist. And he says it very simple at many stages in the advance of humanity, the conflict between men who possess more than they've earned and men who have earned more than they possess is the central condition of progress, right? It, it, it is in our day, it appears I'm getting going to get it wrong, but this is basically it. In our day, it appears as the struggle of freed men to gain and hold the right of self-government against the special interests who twist the methods of free government into machinery for defeating the popular will. At every stage and under all circumstances, the essence of that struggle is to equalize opportunity, destroy privilege and give to the life of every individual the highest possible value 
Uh, that's nothing new. All I ask in, this, in civil life is what you fought for in the Civil War. This is really basic stuff. It's the idea as, of, as, But as, as, as uh, the great record promotion man Fred DiCipio said to me once, uh, kid, you sound like a, a freaking egghead. So uh, how do we translate what you just said in a way that is uh, that can become a, a slogan of sorts, a rallying cry? Yeah. I mean, what I would say is that government's job is to defend the people from corporations and human interests have to come before corporate interests. And there are a zillion examples of that, a zillion of them. Why is this government in the business of allowing a pesticide into production again that causes brain damage? Why did the government allow poor African-American kids and families to get poisoned in Flint, Michigan? It was the government that was in charge of that and they poisoned a bunch of families, poor families, families of color. So, okay, Why good. are they ripping apart Board, you know, kids, families on the border. But you know that all gets translated into you hate progress, you hate uh, the American dream. It gets, and, it gets translated by people who are never going to be convinced because their entire mission is to justify why they've signed on and remain loyal. Right, but we're somebody. an aspirational the American dream manifest destiny to keep going, right, and to keep finding new grounds and conquer them. And it's a difficult thing because this aspirational idea is hardwired into Americans because of that story that we've all told each other for such a long time. Well, and, I and guess, uh, yeah, no, and it, I mean, I'm sitting there thinking, I don't, it's, I don't want, I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but I really don't care about your friend who thinks Trump's okay because X, Y, Z. I'm not trying to convince him. The left has to stop trying to convince the right, has to stop arguing with the right. 104 million Americans did not vote. Every single one of them, especially the young ones who don't vote at a higher rate than anyone else, has a huge stake in democracy and who pulls the levers of power. And every single one of those 104 million voters needs to, somebody in their immediate environment needs to try to speak to them. I'm not concerned about people who right. have been listening to talk radio or who have told themselves a set of ornate stories to justify what amounts to kind of selfishness, white privilege, but, uh, whatever it is. I was, he, he, I, so I, I, I agree with all that. Uh, and I, I've been thinking about, um, well, a couple things. One, for me, the great thing would be to convince people that freedom is actually in jeopardy. And I've had a hard time figuring out how, you know, how to... Uh, really give voice to that partially because they're not that they haven't yet been that competent at squashing or quashing expression right. they've tried but but in fact it's one of the things that gives me some small measure of hope is that the the, the although the press isn't always as vigilant as I, I think the press has been fairly vigilant and has tr enough of the press has tried um, and won't shut up so that feels like, uh, although they'd like to uh, roll back First Amendment rights, they haven't succeeded at that yet. Right. Well, but here's what I would say to a couple of things. If you are a, of a certain, it, a part of what it requires is the telling of good stories. And by good stories, I don't mean stories that are happy. Of course, yeah. It, freedom is in jeopardy. If you're a Muslim American, if you're an undocumented worker, if you're an immigrant, 
If you're a poor girl in a, in a state that is almost surely yes. going to criminalize reproductive rights and you get into a non-consexual sexual encounter, right, where it's skewed, there's some drinking involved, but obviously it's not something that you wanted to have happen. Maybe you don't call it sexual assault, but it was not a happy occurrence. And you find yourself pregnant, you, your freedom is in jeopardy. By the way, even if it was a, how about this? Even if it was a happy experience. Correct. That's how about right, if it I'm was a joyous to... experience right. and... Uh, but you don't want to have a kid because you're not ready to have a kid because there was a right. mistake that happened. Right. And that's what I'm getting at is your freedom is in jeopardy. If you want to form a union because you believe that workers should have power as against these huge corporations, your freedom is in jeopardy. If you're a kid who doesn't want to be burdened by incredible amounts of debt simply for pursuing a higher education, then your freedom is in jeopardy. Do you see what I mean? In a million, in a mil- if you want health care and you're living in rural America and you even are like in Trump country and your local rural hospital closed and, or is no longer willing to, the, the federal subsidies are going to be cut off that used to make your health care available, then your freedom's in jeopardy. Yeah, it's all so hard. It's all so difficult because for those things, you know, for each of those things, we could do a what about. You know, we could go right into what aboutism. Yes, unions as an ideal are great. In practice, often people find either corruption or they find, you know, there are all these ways in which it becomes, I mean, I'm a member of so many unions, but it's, and, uh, you know, <laughs> right. obviously, but I'm saying one could, it's, I don't think we have the traction, uh, the argument that has enough traction yet. Well, listen, what you're describing to me, to be perfectly honest, is a mind that's colonized by what the right is going to say. But I don't care anymore. I don't want to give any more oxygen to that set, that set of propaganda. No, what I'm trying story. to find is an argument to motivate the 100 million people who didn't vote. I'm not, right. I'm not, I'm trying to, because I'm also trying to exist in a real world that those, that those, that that sloganeering will be in, that it has the effect of suppressing the vote, right? So not getting those people to come vote for another party, but just basically tells them that there's no, right. that gives them the feeling that true change can't happen. Well, and this comes back to something I, I picked up listening to Dear Sugar, I, um, which is how good we all are at lying to ourselves, our capacity correct. to lie to ourselves. Right. And it was two things that I was thinking of. I was thinking of our capacity to lie to ourselves, and I was thinking of Henry David Thoreau asking Emerson why we're not all in jail. <laughs> right. I mean, that's it's perfect because when I... And, and you're right that this book is dark and that it's, that it's a bummer, and, and you thank you profoundly for recognizing that there is a kind of hope and optimism that is threaded through my work and ecstatic in the pleasures of the body, uh, right, in, 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 in sort of the yeah. beauty of the country, in the, in the, the fellow feeling. Most of your work understands the romance of being alive. Correct, exactly. And, and that's like, that's, that's my clinging to my hope and my faith. But, you know, I think for a lot of Americans, the reason I wrote bad stories is because I was just going to go nuts if I didn't, because that very thing that you're talking about, our imagination, our capacity to create and invent uh, and, and to tell ourselves stories that make us more merciful and give us greater faith in ourselves and, our, and, and the power of our love, that feels like what's on the, on the ballot. And, you know, we are being pounded by what Wallace Stevens called the pressure of the real. It's another egghead reference, but all it means is we're being so pounded by bad stories when you stick your head in the news cycle that we're becoming incapable of thinking and inventing and, and speaking in an inspiring way. I feel like there are a million things that candidates can say uh, that really are aimed at saying, 
I don't want any more kids to get shot up in schools. We know what the solution is to this. I don't want any more kids to get poisoned. I don't want any more families to get ripped apart. I want to believe in the American dream, and I don't think that should be just be limited to people who happen to be lucky enough to have been born here. I don't want a CEO to make seven million times more than the person assembling an iPhone. Uh, you, you know, it's not hard to speak in very basic moral ways about how incredibly out of balance we are morally. And if we don't, if people of good faith don't do that, we are going to wind up being the Germans of the 1930s. Nobody looks back and says, yeah, but there were some really some good Germans back then who really believed in the, you know, they didn't want Hitler to come back. Well, there was power. a very specific definition of what a good German was. And it's, <laughs> well, it's a very you know different I mean? use of that word. Yeah, well, man. Absolutely. Of course, I, 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 listen, I've been saying this, uh, I, I mean, uh, the, the, the New York Post slammed me the other day because I went at John Poderitz online about the, um, the idea that, uh, that the conditions aren't, that, that, that whether they're effect these people are effective or not, their aims are Hitlerian or their aims are Stalinist. They, that is their, that is in their hearts. That is their intention. Yeah. See, I think that, uh, uh, and and I bet you again, the reason that what I'm saying is, I want to say that to people of good faith, not to people who are on the right. I don't want to have an argument with them anymore. I can't win an argument with them. It's impossible. They won't have an argument grounded in, in what I take to be reality, right? Yes. If in the left is stuck with these really tough stories to sell, Brian, I mean, if, if I'm going to have a responsible discussion with your friend or whoever it is, with me, it was with my friend Zach, or, or I call him something else in the book, yeah. but this friend of mine who was a scientist where he voted for the third-party candidate, and, you know, after the election, I was like, dude, climate change, yes. you're a scientist. You work for a federally funded institution that's predicated on science. You have to see that this that there's yes. an appreciable yes. difference between the way this administration is going to do business and uh, what the what you know Hillary Clinton's administration would have done, and he just said to me, "You're condescending to me. You're acting like an elite. This is why you lost the election." Which is really his way of saying, "I don't want to have to take moral responsibility. You're trying to shame me, and I'm going to take that shame and use it as a weapon against you." I don't believe that arguing with the other side makes any sense at this point. They're not going to accept any of the the, the reasonable adult stories the rea the, you know that are grounded in the reality of the kind of trouble America's in and the planet that's just not going to happen it, along with anger and the exaltation of grievance there's a kind of fearful denialism to the way that they're conducting themselves well i and think the the bad story the one that i have been thinking about a lot lately and i'm going to get the quote wrong too is you know the thing where obama basically said uh, that none of us are wholly responsible for our success and the right used that uh, to really come after him and this idea. You know, he was talking about infrastructure and he was talking about privilege and he's 100% right. You know, but there is something in the fundamental way we tell ourselves the American dream that has to give all credit for responsibility or failure to the individual and doesn't want to own the fact that, you know, something I talk about a decent amount is I was raised uh, wealthy. Wealthy enough that I didn't have to worry about eating. Wealthy enough that I didn't have to have an after-school job. Wealthy enough right. that I could chase my obsessions. Wealthy enough that my college was paid for. And what that allowed for me in time to breathe, in lack of a kind, certain kind of anxiety, 
if I didn't become a successful person, that's entirely my fault. Meaning if I didn't find a way to earn a living and support my family and chase, uh, live a life of more than sustenance, right. it's entirely my fault. But the fact of my success is not entirely my success. Right. Uh, but that message has no traction for some reason. Well, because people don't want to face that. And, and, and Brian, I, I applaud you for saying it in such a succinct, honest way. Anybody who is in the color skin that we're in, in the social stratum that we're in, the economic uh, status that we grew up in, who's frankly in this country or a westernized country, was born lucky. We were born on third base. It's not that we didn't have to work If to you get were home. born white and male in the 70s or late 60s and not to impoverished circumstances... Correct. The the def- you you had in the kind of leg up that is like a historical anomaly. Right, right. And what I think is so you know the way that people have answered that basically the call for people to confront their own privilege. Right. There's Teddy Roosevelt saying destroy privilege. It's our job to destroy privilege. Is basically to say, um, you know, you're coming after me. Uh, you're trying to make me feel bad about who I am. I don't mind, you know, and, and, and you're trying to give other people, uh, allow other people to cut in line in front of me and so forth. It's very, I mean, it's incredibly threatening when people have to reckon with the extent to which they aren't Horatio Alger. They didn't raise themselves up by their bootstraps. They were born on third base and they, you know, they, they, they got home. We, we both ran home, right? We both got to home plate but it was a much easier trip. That's a hard thing for people of privilege to confront. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't try to confront it, but there, you know, what, what Trump was able to do, and the, the, you know, the amazing thing, what is the amazing thing, is a guy who absolutely sums up two simultaneous bad stories. The first is, everything I ever earned, I earned myself. I never got a million dollars from my dad. I never got millions and millions of dollars from my dad. I never ripped off all those people. I never was a cash extractor who basically turned a casino into, you know, who who took out all the money I could and then let everybody else uh, have to pick up the pieces when I went bankrupt. I never did that. I'm just great and successful. It's like a culture of complete lack of accountability, right? And at the same time, abject privilege. And that should be disgusting to people who truly believe in this sort of ideal of rugged individualism and, you know, raising yourself up from humble uh, circumstances. But in a way, we're so in the thrall of wealth and celebrity. Yes. There's so many forms of entertainment. There's this mythos that's overtaken us. This is where I think, and you, Brian, can speak to this more profoundly than I can. This is where I think people really did not recognize how important that show, The Apprentice, was it called? The Apprentice was to Trump's allure and his mystique. People, as you know, from being somebody who makes uh, TV shows, have a powerful connection to your characters and those stories that you tell. The people who are making those stories, like you, are really good at telling compelling stories that plug into people's internal lives and take root inside them. Well, cre- yeah, since you, listen, you, you haven't watched Billions, but what, what you need to understand is that the, the, the story that we wanted to tell, David and I, was we wanted to examine why, and we saw, we saw Trump and Mark Cuban as these huge reality stars. And, uh, and I like Mark Cuban. He's a, uh, an old kind of friend of mine, and I think his, uh, he's done a lot of good, and I don't think they're similar, other than they were 
there, what we noticed was charm, uh, power and wealth, right. and verbal acuity started to stand in for qualities of character in the yeah. judgment of America. And the first season of Billions features this guy who the audience, you know, they really bond to Bobby Axelrod, and then Bobby Axelrod does a bunch of bad shit. And they are still, they still love them. And we wanted to examine why. The whole show is an examination of how we relate to this stuff and what we'll excuse and why we'll excuse it, all of us. Why right. charisma, charm, verbal talent, uh, power, why we not only aspire to it, but we want to connect with it, all right. of us as Americans in yep. some way. Yep. And that I mean, is what I'm, that is the story that I'm interested in telling. And it's something I recognized, Dave and I recognized before Trump was um, the nominee, even. Right. And party. I recognized it in my own weird, failed novel way in writing about over and over again right wing demagogues, writing that whole novel about Bucky Dunn that was basically the story of Trump before Trump came along, you know, five years before, you know, when he was still this. Gaseous, gaseous planet, you know, orbiting around the reality TV world. There is something in all these series. You know, Tony Soprano is the hero, and Walter White is a nerdy science teacher. He's a loser until he starts dealing meth and becomes powerful and violent and seeks dominion over his world. Stringer Bell, we're all addicts for infantile omnipotence. We all plug into that power grid, and that is exactly for his supporters, and not just for his supporters, for everybody, what made Trump so fascinating. It's the story of Ahab. It's the story of Kurtz in literature, the man of action who is essentially got, working out some sort of wounded male insecurity, and because of that, takes violent action against the world, and everybody goes along on the trip, even though they're their best judgment, their conscience says, don't follow this madman. We all follow the madman. And I think that's the best way of looking at why uh, Trump is was a magnetic figure to people, because he represented a very old idea and, and one that we'd seen over and over and over again in our storytelling. And the same thing is true of the biblical, right, the biblical kings and leaders. They were people who just were really good. And all the were you know all the emperors and military leaders the story of history is the story of mass murderers and people who were essentially really effective imperialists uh you know that's julius caesar you know it sounds great if you're on the side of the empire but if you're one of the countries that he was occupying some poor schmo living there you're dust in the wind but that is what a certain kind of American story is, is, and it's a human story. It's a really sort of a story that dates back to Hobbes. It's a story that's before the Enlightenment. It really is an Old Testament story. Might makes right. Plug into who's powerful. If there's going to be a bully, he better be a bully on my behalf. And that is what was enough with other serious problems in, with civic apathy and representative democracy being broken and people intentionally rigging the system and outside interference, that core belief system and sort of emotional story won the day. And the question now is, well, how do we win it back for people well, who just yeah. want government to work? No, listen, from, I love that. And I, I love that rant from Joseph Conrad to, you know, Apocalypse Now from the Bible right. to, from the Bible to uh, the band Kansas. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that was very... Very impressive. People can find those things in all those so all those places have all that stuff. 
there. Um, and of course, you're right. It's it, I, I was thinking um, about like the character in these '70s movies, the Johnny Boy or the Eric Roberts in Pope of Greenwich Village, or even Worm in our movie Rounders. The the friend right. you were worried was going to lead your hero astray have somehow become the protagonist in America. You know, they're somehow the friend. America's the protagonist, but they're leading us all in the right. direction of only the id and the short time, the short con uh, has become the only thing we can see. Right. And it's fascinating because when you unpack what's happening in terms like when you really think about it, of course Trump had to hate immigrants because immigrants believe in a conception of America, of how you make progress and how you become better. That's really honest, hard work, the slow accretion of, op- of a little bit more money so your kids do a little bit better than you. It's like the sucker's version of democracy. But we're not into the sucker's version of democracy. We're too steeped in casino capitalism. So we think actually what you do is you just put your, you know, you, you just, it, you know it's, it's a long shot, but you put your bet down on the guy who is basically the owner of the casinos who, you know, craps into golden toilets and says he's a populist. You say that guy, maybe that guy is enough to upset a government that doesn't work for me, that I don't understand that I'm alienated from, that's a rigged system, that, that's a bunch of people in Washington yelling at each other, that's reality TV for ugly people. And that is the notion that, that Trump was selling. There's no real policies there. There was It wasn't a contest of ideas. It was a, a swapping of slogans, right, and scandals. And he was basically saying, hey, I'm going to give you all health care. And, you know, it was like the, it was the thinking of the get rich seminar. It was the thinking of the Ponzi scheme. And maybe that's the place that capitalism has reached. Where, But I believe, call me a sucker, but I do believe there are enough people of good faith in this country, I say this all the time, Brian, there are more of us than there are of them. If them is, I'm willing to go along with whatever story he's telling, whatever actions he's taking against whatever vulnerable communities, because he makes my feelings okay. He makes me feel powerful. Or my pocketbook. Or my pocketbook, sure, absolutely. Even if that's a wrong story. Even if that's a wrong story. Right. In, in In the long term, it's the wrong story. But you're right, for a lot of people, it's the it's the moral logic of eugenics. The, the the wealthy are virtuous and the poor are morally defective, and so we should really get rid of them or so, make their. Or, so to, you know. to to wrap this up, uh, and and dude, here's the thing: the next time you come through New York, yes. let's do the podcast and talk about Steve Allman, the writer, the life you live, the creative life, how you've built. Because okay. I think that stuff is really the heart of what this podcast is. And I would love to have that conversation with you because you're someone who's found a way to uh, get on paper and into the world the stuff that matters to you. And I I think that's a really valuable conversation and a half for people um, as valuable as, as this conversation is. but uh, <laughs> This big bummer of a conversation. But, so right? we should do that when you come through New York and really have that it. conversation. It's about when we'll be better in, in person. But uh, I was thinking a lot about Randy Newman's song, A Few Words, uh, a few words in Defense of Our Country. And mm-hmm. you know, there's a line in that song, uh, the end of an empire is messy at best. And uh, he's talking about our empire. And he was right. talking about the beginnings of the end of it during Bush. What... Uh, where do you think we are in, in, in as a way to close it out? First of all, is it are we in an inevitable decline? Uh, is the is this uh, is inertia has inertia already taken hold, or do you genuinely put your head down on the pillow and uh, or as you look at your kids and kiss them goodnight and go back into your room? Do you still think that there's the possibility of brighter days ahead? Oh, of course. Look, the pendulum swings. It, it, people have to recognize. 
you know, as as much as there are are, are um, bad stories coming at us all the time that, that seem like every fresh atrocity. Now they're going after breastfeeding mothers to protect the formula companies. Like really, right? The milk of human kindness is now on the chopping block. But here's the deal: America was founded on slave labor. Women weren't allowed to vote. Uh, you know, children were working in factories until they, you know, in dying in their workplaces. Like America was always a nation of beautiful ideals and horrible behaviors. And we have gradually and steadily become more enlightened uh, and, and kinder and gentler. And the pendulum swings back and forth. Uh, and, but here's the deal about the pendulum. It doesn't swing on its own. The right has announced, and the corporate interests in this country have announced who they are and who they're okay with leading us, a sexual predator, all the rest of it. They've said, we're okay, we don't have a conscience, here's what we're going with, as long as we get our tax breaks and our, and our you know, Supreme Court justices, right? And now the question isn't, who are they, and how do we convince them, or how do we talk to them, it's who are we? And I believe that the way that you know, the pendulum is going to swing back is by enough people of good faith believing in the possibility of their own citizenship mattering. This is a question, ultimately, that redounds to faith. And, you know, it's, it's the reason that I think about and talk a lot about faith, even though I'm an atheist Jew, because I really feel like we're living in a moment where our country, like an Old Testament country, has sort of fallen away, and the prophets are all sitting there railing, saying, the Israelites, you're no longer listening. You know, you're, you're worshiping the golden calf. You've gotten impatient. And Moses is still up there. He's taken too long. We've taken the wrong path. We're down a dark alley. But I honestly believe if you look back at, you know, recent American history, there was a war on poverty before there was a war on terror. You know what I mean? There was a civil rights movement. There was suffrage. There was abolition. And those things happened because enough Americans of good faith and good conscience said, enough. I'm not okay with this. I don't consent to these bad stories, and I don't consent to these bad outcomes. And I really believe that enough people are going to become active, and they're going to do it now. 2018 is the most important election of my lifetime. I'm 51, because the right has said, here's who we are, and here's what we're okay with. We are okay with the road to authoritarianism. And the left and people in the center and people of good faith, without even putting on a, la a label on it, now know they've told us who they are. And now the big question is, who are we? Not right, will the millennials save us? Not will the media save us? Not will Brian Koppelman save us? We are going to have to save ourselves. And that's only going to be when people get off their ass and you know, start to become active in whatever way, not just tweeting, not just, you know, sharing the latest clip of Samantha B, but actually becoming politically active as citizens. I think it's going to happen. I pray it's going to happen. Like every day, this atheist prays that's going to happen. Well, that is perfectly said. And, and uh, I'll just end this by saying to our listeners, um, read bad stories and maybe journal a bit and think to yourself about, uh, good stories, real stories. The you know how you can, uh, how we can all try to see the world more clearly and figure out our steps. And I would also say, if anyone listens to this podcast and they have not seen the '70s movie Network, this would be yeah. a really good time for you to watch that film. First of all, it's one of the most entertaining films made in our lifetime, uh, but it's also crucial to understanding the world we are living in. Steve Allman, thank you so much for doing this. This has been a fascinating conversation for me, even if uh, you're a big, bit of an egghead. <laughs> I love it. Thanks, man. 
So thanks to Steve Almond, and uh, you know you can follow him. He's on Twitter, and uh, follow me on Twitter at Brian Koppelman, or email me themomentbk at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next time. At the end of the day, you want to commute home listening to a good podcast, and you want to come home and have a good night's sleep on a great mattress. Pro tip, your budget stretches further at Mattress Firm. We appreciate you listening to this podcast, and we promise you'll appreciate us once you head to Mattress Firm and find your perfect mattress at the perfect price. Don't forget to go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast to learn how you can improve your sleep and save 10% with the code podcast10. It's sleep you dream about.